everybody welcome to the latest episode of free for all this is your host big john actually i'm the junior host of this uh, duo here my senior co-host fellow here someone legendary in the libertarian broadcasting game none other than mr bob zadek bob how are you today i'm fine big john i don't mind being the senior the only thing i would mind is you started gaining on me um, so long as the the difference between our ages remains constant, I'm happy. Mm, I think it might, I might be closing the gap on, a little bit on you. I, too much snow on the rooftop and in the driveway there, Bob. But uh, it's always uh, a great time when we get to do a show together, my friend. And I'm happy to do so again today. Uh, we have a great topic. We want to talk about feminism today, Bob. And we have three wonderful guests joining us today. Uh, I'm going to look off here slightly to make sure I get their names and their bios correctly. Uh, we have Brian Kaplan. Uh, he's a professor of economics at George Mason University. And he is the best-selling author of Myth of the Rational Voter, Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids, The Case Against Education, Open Borders, and Labor Econ Versus the World. Hmm. One might think that he might have a libertarian outlook or two in life based on those titles. Uh, Brian, welcome to the show. Fantastic to be here. <laughs> All right. John. I love that. I love that. Uh, you've got that professorial sort of uh, uh, bite to you. So that's pretty good for the show. I appreciate that. Welcome. Also joining us today on the show, Kathy Reisenwitz. She is the creator of Sex and the State, and she's working to end loneliness and build connection in society. Uh, she has bylines in TechCrunch, The Daily Beast, The Week, and Reason, as well as many other places. Kathy, welcome to the show today. Yes, absolutely. Very soft-spoken. Hmm. We'll have to draw. Some, we'll have to draw some excitement out of you. I'm sure we can get around. to that point as well. Also joining us today, Kat Murti. And again, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. She is the co-founder of Feminists for Liberty, a nonprofit that is uplifting libertarian feminist voices and changing the narrative about both feminism and libertarianism. She is also the co-leader of the D.C. chapter of the Ladies uh, of Liberty Alliance, as well as a communications consultant for the international organization. Uh, Kat, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here today. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So we have a great forum here, Bob. And I think the first question, because uh, we have to understand what we're talking about, so let's let's take a quick uh, go around the table and discuss uh, what is the definition of feminism. I'm sure if you ask 10 people, uh, you might get 10 different definitions ranging from uh, philosophical to uh, very activist uh, uh, angry takes on what the definition might be. So much like uh, when you put four libertarians in a room, you have four definitions of libertarianism. Let's start off. So... Um, Bob, let's start off with you. If someone were to say, what is feminism? What would you, what, how would you describe it? It's probably, probably somebody who is actively trying to draw attention to the fact that 
structurally in society, women are treated unfairly. Uh, hmm. That's uh, that's obviously not a technical definition. It's simply my impression because I never was asked before what feminism is. Hmm. But and I uh, I will just mention that I remember being taught uh, by uh, a woman colleague of mine, and I have to tell you the time frame because it's very important because feminism has a history. And feminism in the 1970s is very different than feminism today, I believe. The issues are different. And when I was insensitive, not, not... thoughtless, but just unaware. This woman who was in business, in commercial lending, and in a minority, explained to me, we were sitting in a meeting, and the speaker, who was several generations older than me, looked in the audience, saw a woman, and said, he thought he was being gracious, I think, but he was two generations older, and that's important. He said, seeing this woman, it's nice to have a pretty woman in the audience. Mm. He was meant to be complimentary. And something sounded awful about that to me. And the woman who was my guest, she was in business, she said, the way to test it, the way to understand it, she said, and I'm Jewish, She said, whenever you hear that kind of phrase, take out woman and replace it with Jew Mm. and ask yourself how you feel. If a speaker looks out in the audience and says, how nice to see a Jew in the audience. Ouch. And that was my introduction to feminism that I still use as my test today. Okay. So so to to some extent... Uh, you you view it as a definition of a some sort of hierarchy that might be uh, exclusionary of uh, or, or or slanted against uh, women. Well, feminism is uh, is a, an individual. A feminist is, in my opinion, I'm not right. giving the definition, the dictionary. It's uh, a woman. Usually, I guess you can't male feminist. A woman who is considers it to be important and they are activists about it, reminding people or drawing attention to the fact that there is unfairness in against women in society or in business. And I'm not saying there necessarily is, but a feminist who self-identifies as feminist believes that there is, and this is different conference, believes that there is and has as her goal to draw attention to that fact and to affect change. Fair enough. Kathy, do you agree with that definition or do you have a different definition that you tend to work off of? Yeah, I mean, my definition, and I think the one that's most useful is that Mm. feminism is the movement against sexism. I don't think that we need to make an argument about who is more oppressed. I think everyone is oppressed by sexism. And so in any force in society that is uh, 
a negative contributor, then there should be a movement to oppose it. And so feminism okay, is Kat, a movement to oppose it. Do you agree sexism. with that? Or is there a, a more, a different or more expansive definition you work off of? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think you started it off right by saying that there are probably just endless definitions. And part of that is because there's many different schools of feminism and many different schools of thought around these issues. I think Kathy is actually coming from a pretty strong point when she says it's a movement against sexism. My definition that I probably most often use is that a feminist is someone who believes in the political, social, and economic equality of the sexes. And when I say that, I'm saying that from the point of view of equality of opportunity, to have rule of law equally apply to everyone, to have um, equal ability to compete in, in a free market. And uh, I am, of course, a libertarian feminist, and we like to say that libertarian feminism um, if feminism is, as the old uh, bumper sticker slogan goes, Bob, you might enjoy this one with your story you just shared with us. Uh, if feminism is the radical notion that women are people, libertarian feminism is the even more radical notion that people of all genders are individuals and should be treated as such. So as a libertarian feminist, we believe that gender equality is tied not just to the social and cultural liberty, but to economic liberty as well that libertarianism is consent culture applied to everything and that there's really nothing more fundamentally collectivist than treating anyone as simply representative of their sex or their gender. And that's, and that's a good definition from my viewpoint. Uh, also, just to, uh, I'm glad you said equality opportunity because that would have set up the equality of outcomes and that the quality exactly of <laughs> right. So I'm glad you did. You saved me a big objection. So I appreciate you having uh, said that. Uh, Brian, uh, we'll finally get around to you. I hope you're not offended being the last one being asked. But feminism, your working definition. Right. So I'll say I don't have a working definition. I'm not trying to come up with some particular version of what it means to me. My goal at the beginning is to ask how do people, in fact, use the word. Mm. that's what you're supposed to do when you're discussing at least a common word is just say, well, what in fact is the way that people use it rather than to stipulate a new one. So I mm. just wanted to start off in that way. Uh, so that's why I went into a lot of public opinion research. Uh, here's the thing. So over half of all Americans say they are not feminists. Mm. Therefore, if you define it in such a way that you are imputing a view to half of, over half Americans that they don't have, there's something fishy that is going on. So, for example, uh, there was a great 2016 Washington Post-Kaiser Family Foundation survey where, on the one hand, they asked, are you a feminist or not? And there, again, you get about 46% saying they are, 54% saying they're not. But then if you ask, do you believe in the political, economic, and social equality of men and women, guess what? 95% of all Americans say yes, which, if you do the math, means that 90% of non-feminists agree with that. So to go and say that they don't seems to me to be really slanderous. You're just imputing a view they don't hold. And then it brings us to the question, so what is it that actually distinguishes the two views? What is a definition such that it would describe feminists correctly and also does, and also for the not that to describe non-feminists correctly? And this is where I'll say that I think almost all the definitions that I heard are ones where they just assume that non-feminists hold some terrible view that they don't in fact generally hold. Uh, I think that it's best just to go with a very simple anodyne definition, which is feminism is the view that our society generally treats men more fairly than women. 
To say that feminism is the opposition to sexism, again, that makes it sound like 54% of Americans believe in sexism, which they say they don't. Uh, you might say that they secretly are or do, but seems unfair. I mean, I, I think what is actually happening is that um, people maybe have different understandings of what sexism means. Mm -hmm. um, so, and one, two, I think one of the big problems with the differentiation between the people who ascribe to feminism and the people who say that they uh, support uh, gender equality is that the a lot of people's understanding of feminism isn't from feminists. It's from people who are talking about feminists um, and usually people who oppose feminism and will straw man it. And so if you have an idea like libertarianism, if you ask a lot of people, if you poll people, do you believe in this tenet of libertarianism? They'll say yes. But th then you ask them, are you a libertarian? They'll say no. And a lot of that is because they don't understand what libertarians actually believe because they're getting a lot of their views of what libertarian is from people who are anti-libertarianism. So, the so it's easy to be mistaken about what a view says libertarian. if it's held by a very small number of people. If it's a view that about half of Americans hold, then I think it's pretty hard to be mistaken about what it is. Uh, you might say that the feminists that people are complaining about don't count. But again, I would say, well, how about we do this statistically and just see what are the general views? Uh, so again, like we can go through other surveys. I've got a new piece coming out on this. And again, what you'll see is that roughly 60% of Americans also say that our society generally treats women worse than it treats men, treats them less fairly. And again, this is what's really striking to me. When I do argue with feminists after saying my definition is bad, then almost everything else they say is how badly women are treated and how men's complaints are not fair or reasonable. So again, I think that actually I, my I view is a correct description of how people are using the word. I don't think that uh, most feminists would say that men do not have uh, completely reasonable complaints against sexism. Now, are there mm -hmm. internet trolls? Are there outliers who maybe haven't read feminist theory, uh, have not been following uh, a lot of the feminist debates and things like that, who do have this sort of uh, hitting a, hitting every nail with a hammer approach to feminism that does come out as this men are bad. Yeah, of course. But the same thing happens mm -hmm. with libertarianism, as we know, uh, you know, people all the time think that support for immigration, liberalized immigration, is a fundamentally uh, anti-libertarian policy. And you, I think all of us on this call disagree with them, as do mo most people who actually read libertarian theory. The same way, capitalism, if you ask people if they like capitalism, the vast majority of people who stridently support it do oppose very free market policies, including uh, borders, uh, open borders. So I do think that that's not exactly what hap is happening. I think the people are responding more to what they've culturally imbued as what feminism is, which oftentimes is this kind of man-hating uh, viewpoint rather than just opposing sexism. Because uh, feminists, ranging even from early suffragettes like uh, Alice Paul to people like Betty Friedan, who, um, you know, famously wrote the feminist, uh, the feminine mystique, and then went on to write the, uh, the second stage that specifically talks about um, a lot of the ways in which men uh, are, are harmed by uh, these sexist policies. Alice Paul was pushing back against conscription, um, 
if you look at the push for the ERA in the 70s, uh, the, the people who were in favor of men being conscripted and laws that specifically conscripted men were the people who were against the ERA. The women and male feminists who were pushing for the ERA were doing that saying that, one, we shouldn't have conscription, but if we do, it should apply equally to both sexes. Um, I just, I don't think that that's a fair definition. I think that it really is about pushing back against sexism, whether or not uh, that might be the definition that Twitter embraces. I have a question. Uh, I'm trying to follow the conversation. Uh, Brian, you had, this is, I'm going to mention Brian specifically and then Kathy specifically, but it's a more, it's a question for the group. Uh, Brian, you use the word in your explanation of society, society in some context, society should or society does. And when I hear these discussions, I am I find myself less concerned, not unconcerned, but less concerned about complaints about society because it's people are permitted to be stupid or emotional and it's sort of while I would I would consider that in selecting my friends and maybe even my neighbors but I don't get so worked up over fa failings in human beings I don't it just it doesn't it's not a call to action for me unless it's personal uh, the, so I don't under and does feminism not recognize, the second comment is, does fe as a question, does feminism not recognize, and I just don't know the answer to this, I'm not picking a fight, I, I truly don't know the answer, that of course there are differences, maybe I shouldn't say of course anymore, but I will, of course there are differences between men and women, anything from life expectancy to obvious physical differences and things of that day, and mental differences and emotional differences. Of course, we're not interchangeable. And, and that to some degree, you have to be blind not to have legislation that recognizes that or else the legislation would itself be unfair. So where does where does the rec how does the recognition of obvious indisputable differences come into play in this conversation it's a question for me um well uh, actually i'll i'll say to kathy because it was kathy's comment that i sort of perked up over but i wasn't mm -hmm. taking notes for my rebuttal so therefore i don't have exact quotes and and it's a broad question, so anybody who, um, to the extent that the audience may also have the same question, perhaps if you have an opinion, anybody, uh, the opinion would help the audience. I mean, I have unlimited opinions, <laughs> but as far as uh, innate gender differences, which is, I think, sex differences, which is, I think, what you're getting at, I think uh, different schools of feminism have different uh, opinions on uh, how gender differences in behavior relate to biology. Like it's hard to know. Um, but I would say that 
the feminism that, you know, Kat and I uh, ascribe to uh, wants to see those, uh, the society treat men and women more equally. So um, for example, this is from, and Kat, I, I hate to tell your story. I, I want you to tell the story, but we, we were in a book club and um, we were talking about uh, the fact that after having kids, the average man's wages increase and the average woman's wages decrease. Well, part of that is probably that women work fewer hours on average, especially after they have children. Um, but why are they working fewer hours on average after they have children? Is it entirely that we have a biological drive to work fewer hours outside the home after we have kids? Or is it partly socially uh, constructed? Um, do we feel pressure from society to uh, work fewer hours after we have children? And so what feminism looks at is like, uh, how do we strip away the gender biases um, so that people can act uh, according to what they would do if they weren't feeling that pressure. Um, and so, Kat, do you want to tell, tell the story or do you mind telling the story or do you want me to try to... Yeah, I think this is actually really interesting. We were talking about the... Um, uh, in this context that Kathy's mentioning, we were talking about the uh, gender wage gap or there's several different labels that it goes by, but it's this idea that uh, Brian actually does address in his book to a limited extent that... Um, the, the, the left sort of, the left sort of ascribes it as because of sexism, women make less money than men and the right more or less says it's because women make different choices that they make less money than men. But what you're missing is a huge part of the data, which for example, shows that, um, young unmarried millennial women who live in cities for the most part mm -hmm. make significantly more than their male peers what happens is when they get married when they have children that's when all of a sudden that reverses and it reverses for a few different reasons uh one is that they might be making choices to stay at home or to take on different types of uh careers it might also be uh that uh men who have children end up spending more time working and all of that when we get back to is this society um you know if people are making those choices completely freely i think that there's no problem with that of course but that's not always the case there's uh there's been a number of different studies that look into this and of course women um you know or at least people who give birth they they do face something very different there's a, a small study that looked at um, parental leave of economists. Um, and these are couples where um, they're economists and they looked at what happens when you grant the same type of parental leave uh, regardless of uh, the sex or gender, however you want to look at it, of the individual taking the leave. And you see a difference where men who take parental leave end up doing better in their careers uh, than uh, than women still, but they also do better than men who don't, but the women who take parental leave are for the most part doing worse than both. They're still doing better than women who uh, have children and don't have that same parental leave, but that tells us something. And I think part of that does tie back to uh, the biological difference between giving birth to a child, you're actually recovering from um, a medical incident, whereas, um, and then a lot of times you're also using that parental leave to 
breastfeed or otherwise take care of this child, whereas they found that the male economists who were taking uh, the same length of parental leave oftentimes were using it kind of more like a sabbatical. They published more papers than men that did not take parental leave. So part of that is a societal question. Uh, but it does show that these sort of like top-down attempts to force people into this one-size-fits-all mold isn't going to work. Well, I think, yeah. Well, the, 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 before we go on, the, oh, the story I was thinking about I was see. your colleague who was um, pregnant she and taken pregnant, aside actually. by she's, her she's child boss. Free, which I think is notable. And this is a... This is not a colleague, but this is a woman that I know kind of in similar circles. She works uh, at a think tank and she was talking about how, uh, you know, she'd had a good year. She'd published a lot of work. She'd been on TV a lot. And then all of a sudden her research assistant was promoted to a role above her. And she was wondering why that happened. Um, it was a good year for her both privately and in her, in her, uh, work because that year she had also recently gotten married. She was in her early 30s. She'd recently bought a house. And so she um, she was in the elevator with her boss and her boss, uh, you know, br brings up the house and congratulates her on the marriage. And then he really, she realizes that she, he looked at her stomach and then asked any other updates. Um, and so she scheduled a meeting with him and she sat down and she had a conversation where, uh, she said, Hey, I'm curious both about what you meant by that, but also I'm wondering if that might have had something to do with the fact that I thought that I was going to be getting this promotion and you promoted my male research assistant above me. Did I do something wrong? Was he doing something, uh, that I didn't do anything I could have improved? And it came down to, um, her boss told her, well, no, I, I thought, you know, you just got married, you bought the house. I thought that you would want to start having children. And I thought that this new role was going to have a whole lot of travel in it. And it was going to be a big commitment. And I didn't think that it was something, uh, I didn't want to put that extra pressure on you if you were looking to start a family now. Now, uh, that I'm willing to bet that if uh, she had been a man who'd recently gotten married and he thought that she was going to start a family, he may not have made that same decision to not promote her. Um, certainly the studies on that have shown that oftentimes men uh, get more, they're viewed as more reliable and likely to take on more workload and get more opportunities there. And this, her boss wasn't attempting to be a sexist. He wasn't trying to hold her down. There was a, nothing like that. This, he was trying to help her and in doing so, he just cut her out of this promotion that uh, she thought that she would be getting. Um, and mm. he was shocked by it, right? So that does happen yeah. as well. So there's there's really like two levels to this, right? Because one is the – so first of all, I'm fascinated um, as a data scientist myself. I kind of uh, – I'm always fascinated by this. When we see changes or differences – why do we assume that out of multiple variables, the one significant one is sex or, or gender? Why do we assume that, hey, if we see a class of, say, mostly women who are either in the aggregate or in specific uh, intersectionality making less than men, why is it specifically because they're women? There's 20 other variables, right? There's personality traits. There's aggressiveness. There's... Uh, uh, ambition, there's um, willingness to, to for confrontation, things of that nature. And also, 
having run businesses, uh, you also understand that it, it does have to do with time. Uh, a lot of people underestimate, well, what's an extra hour? What's an extra two hours? Uh, what's that research? Uh, something like the people who work 10% more hours end up getting something like 40 to 50% of the increases and the promotions in, in large companies. It's, it's these small differences at the margins that tend to add up and, and, and have positive effects for people. So why is it that we just view gender or sex, whatever the appropriate term is, out of all these possible variables between humans are so variable, obviously, right? So what is it that differentiates someone at the top of the normal distribution from one standard deviation out? We don't know. Um, it could be a factor of things, not just one thing. And Big yeah, John, I was going to yeah. ask Brian the, the same question slightly differently. In Kat's story or her, several anecdotes, was there anything feminist related in those stories? Or were they just stories about misunderstandings, innocent behavior, and nothing to buy a t-shirt about? Right. <laughs> No, the whole conversation is about how sexism yeah. no, impacts. I was just curious because yeah. right? Brian, it, in the presentation, I, I there was a lot of data. Uh, Go ahead, Brian. Go yeah. ahead, Brian. All right. Look, if it's just a bunch of stories, who knows, right? If you just said, give me a bunch of stories about women being mistreated, we could go on all day. If you said, all right, now give me a full day's worth of stories about men being mistreated. That's a lot of what social science tries to do is to try to sort through these stories and see what's really going on. I mean, I'm actually very surprised that on a panel of all people with an interest in liberty, no one is considering the obvious story or the obvious explanation in Kat's story, which is that due to discrimination law, the boss did not feel comfortable talking to your friend about what was really going on. If he were to go and say, oh, are you planning on having a baby? If you're not, then I'll promote you. But if, but if you are, then I won't. That would be something where it would be a, a major lawsuit. If she had, the, if she was recording it, that would be a very large financial cost for him. So yeah, we have created a system where the law is so eager to go and hunt down discrimination that even someone just asking an innocent question in order to figure out what would be a mutually advantageous arrangement can get in trouble. Um, yeah. Well, so, Brian, I actually think to draw this back to your book, one of the things that you, and to connect this directly, one of the things that you highlight as one of the ways in which the world is unfair to men is that oftentimes uh, they don't get to spend as much time with their children, and uh, they often and they don't end up with primary custody as much in the event of a divorce. Yeah. And of course, part of that is again there might be some benevolent sexism happening where judges on the bench are looking over and saying like, "Hey, well, um, I think that mothers are good for children and more important than fathers, and that's why that's happening." But more and more and more, largely because of feminism and because of changing views on uh, the role of parenthood. That's not the case, but what is still happening is there, uh, these judgments are being based upon, well, who has been spending the most time with that child and who has been the primary caretaker and that's who it'll default to. And of course, that's uh, states are increasingly going to 50-50 custody and things like that, again, uh, largely because of feminist pushes around this as well. But um, yeah, I think that that's one way in which these kinds of views actually do hurt men, this idea that they sh don't, aren't necessary for 
uh, parenting and that it doesn't matter. And I know your father, you have several children. I'm sure you know how much that value that adds to your life, the time that you spend with your kids. I know I feel that way about mine. So, Brian, a question, uh, if I may, uh, in I think in Kat's, uh, when Kat was speaking a second ago, or it may have been Kathy, um, a statistic or a series of statistics were mentioned relating um, men who took parental leave mm -hmm. as compared to their salary. It was something like that. They were two, uh, two uh, variables that were linked together. And of course, Brian... I'm sure I've heard you say and many other economists that correlation is not causation, a phrase that packs a lot. Um, and so, and I thought to myself, I wonder if that's what came first. Maybe it was the qualities that cause a male to take parental leave are the same qualities that make the male a better employee. So I wonder if you could, if you have a thought about those types of statistics that may be cited to prove something where it's full. It's, it doesn't prove it. The case of academic economists is really weird because if you understand how academia works, what really matters to your career is research and what you're trying to weasel out of is teaching. Right. So that's basically what's going on in these cases of parental leave. It's really leave from teaching and then you can still do as much or as little research as you can manage to squeeze in. Normal jobs don't work that way. Right. So in a normal job, the actual pattern is that men take much less parental leave because they rightly expect that they will be considered to be shirking and taking advantage of the situation. Uh, women take a lot more parental leave. Uh, again, I think a lot of it is that they think the law will protect them and has their back once they have a job anyway, such that if they do max it out, it won't be perceived as being so bad. But also, if people are secretly unhappy with what they're doing, they realize there is the government to go and make thinly veiled or not veiled threats that if you go and treat me differently just because I go and have a different priority than work, you're going to get punished. So it sounds like all of this comes down to and, and not necessarily to the point of feminism or sexism per se, but rather just at what level does discrimination between humans rise to the level of some sort of offense or legal uh, uh, violation, right? So we all, as individuals, I think we all agree that we should have the right to be discriminatory uh, in, in various things, right? Like I can't walk up to uh, any particular uh person that I find sexually uh, attractive and demand that they have sex with me, right? Because it's they have the right to discriminate against me. I'm not their type. I'm an idiot, whatever, right? So there is that basic level of discrimination or discriminatory uh, 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 decision-making that we, we retain. So at what extent does that then become a negative, right? So uh, is it based on gender? Is it based on ethnicity? Is it based on uh, skin color? At what point, as libertarians say, do we then say, well, we have this unlimited right to be discriminatory against anybody? I think I think the government doesn't, right? Like we, I think we could all agree well, the I government in its function can't say women over men, men over women, black over white, whatever the case may be. But we as individuals, even though idiotic, right? Don't we have the right to be discriminatory? At what at what is the range of discrimination that's acceptable? The, the word discrimination 
is a very slippery word. One of the earliest feminist, I guess this disqualifies, I'll, I'll stand corrected if somebody chooses to do so. There was an early issue that came about when, um, when feminism was started to be brought to the attention of the public at large, and it related, as I recall, to the fact that uh, life insurance premiums, I think I'm correct about this, uh, women were, uh, men, there was a discrimination in how premiums were charged. It may have been health insurance between men and women because women statistically lived longer. And that cost, Brian, perhaps you can help, mm -hmm. that cost was women were bearing a greater cost because statistically or actuarially, they costed more. And early on, that was looked upon as being, Big John, your word, discriminatory. And that was corrected. And with employment as well is... Well, Bob, it's kind of odd to say it's corrected. It sounds like you're saying it actually made perfect sense. If women live longer, of course, then it would make sense to charge but, life insurance rate. But but they were they railed yeah. against it, and that was a sign of unfair treatment because it wasn't even though it was economically based. And the same thing happens, of course, in employment. Um, right. I mean, what's striking there is that when it comes out the other way, for example, in auto insurance premiums, then the law generally does not worry about it, which again, I think fits with, it is not really any effort to go and fight sexism. It is an effort to say that anything bad that happens to women is, is especially bad and we're going to do a lot about it and things that happen bad to men. Well, first of all, maybe they aren't real or second of all, we don't really care. Well, I disagree with you and I think there's a historical precedent. I want to get back to Big John's uh question here, but I mean, even if we look at uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, definitely not a libertarian, but the, the first case that she argued in court was a tax case, Moritz, mm -hmm. uh, where she was specifically, what the big win in this case was, it was not equal application of the law because the IRS discriminated against men. And men who were caregivers, as, as caretakers, men, right? Yeah. You know yeah. this, yeah, you know the case, unmarried yeah. men could not take a specific tax benefit because uh, the IRS was essentially assuming that men could not fill that role. And so I don't think that that's the only way that this happens, but. Right. I, I never said it was not the, it was the only way. It is the general statistically common way. Come on. But, it, but in those cases, we're still talking about a coercive body. Right. The government. Exactly. So that's um, exactly what I was going to say, Big John. I right. actually do think that do you have a right to discriminate? Yes, we all have a right to discriminate. And I don't think that we should have those kinds of anti-discrimination laws. And I don't think that the people who, you know, uh, oftentimes promote those laws would as well if they understood the, the impacts of them, because many times they just create discrimination in other ways or they solidify certain types of discrimination. Uh, I do- so, Pat, what do you think would happen if we got rid of discrimination laws? Discriminating is generally speaking, not good. Uh, I think that you can face social censure as a result of it. And I think, you know, I'm a big believer in free market capitalism. And I think certain and types economic. of are just not very popular. And if you want to be the company that only hires men, for example, I think you should be allowed to. And I think that you're probably going to get a lot of bad media based upon it. And, you know, maybe that's 
not what you well, want, but you're absolutely you right. And and Kathy, you, I'm sorry, you or were should be. Kathy. Yeah, sorry, Kat. Uh, I meant to say, Kathy, you mentioned the economic penalty, right? So, I think at the end of it, that's the purity test, isn't it? Like, if, right. if you're a company so, that discriminates, and your services are only as good as the the non-discriminatory companies, the free market would sort that out. But what in the you would hope? Sort of. That's not really. You would hope, but it's not actually the case. So we have found that companies will discriminate even when it hurts their bottom line. I mean, the fact of the matter is that when women entered the workforce en masse, we saw billions of dollars in economic growth, which means up until that point, we've been leaving all that on the table. Um, we see uh, business owners foregoing profits to discriminate uh, consistently. But I think going back to your original point about um, non-discrimination laws, I think libertarians leave a ton of value on the table by saying if there's a problem and we don't like the legal solution to it or the more regulation solution to it, we're going to pretend it's not a problem. I think that's really cowardly and alienating to the people who realize it is actually a problem. And the fact of the matter is sexism is a problem. I mean, for example, when you look at and there's empirical data to show that when women go to the ER and they report their pain, their pain is uh, minimized, undertreated. Women are more likely to have their physical ailments diagnosed as anxiety and depression, yada, yada. Like these are real things. And I don't support trying to force doctors to not discriminate against women. I think we need to, as a, a movement, say this is a real problem. Here are some voluntary. Yes, I agree with Kathy you know, that if there is in fact a problem, that it's very foolish to tell people it doesn't exist in order to go and salvage the free market. On the other hand, oftentimes there are fake problems that people are worried about, or exaggerated problems, or problems where you say that it's a problem of women and is in fact a problem of humans. So that's a lot of what I tried to do in the title essay for Don't Be a Feminist, is just go through most of the complaints. Uh, so again, most of the ones that we hear about are about the labor market, and this is one that has been studied in a lot of detail. And yes, it really is quite easy to explain male-female earnings gap using characteristics of jobs, using characteristics of the training that men and women have. If you then want to raise the bar and say, all right, yes, men are making more money because they do STEM, but... Why is it that our society doesn't encourage women to do STEM? Um, I mean, I would say that's where your bar is getting so high that you're really never going to be satisfied anyway, because, you know, just one was like, well, there's a lot of reasons why some people might want to study something rather than another. Um, and furthermore, it's one where you could get in trouble for going and trying to interfere with another person's choice and saying, you need to do STEM. What if I don't want to do STEM? But yeah, you know, it's right that if there is a problem, it should be acknowledged. A lot of what I say is it just turns out that a lot of problems that people are complaining about are, in fact, either not true or they're exaggerated or they're ones where there's a simpler explanation that has nothing to do with sexism. And then along the way, we wind up ignoring a great deal of sexism against men, which is built into the law, of course. You know, you can say that discrimination laws hurt men and women both, but clearly the people that are normally getting sued for sex discrimination are men. Right? The people that are usually bringing these cases are women. Uh, there are indirect effects, like it means that employers are nervous about hiring women for fear that they might get sued. But on the other hand, it's also the case that the defendant is usually going to be a man. Sometimes you might say he deserves it. And I'd say that when we really look at the social science, I think that probably it is very rare that it is deserved. It is more of a case of using the law to go and take advantage. 
Well, it's Brian. definitely. Uh, I'm sorry. I just want Bob one point uh, before we get you in on this next. Isn't this akin, in some sense, to what people, for, for example, are free speech advocates, right? Yes, there are pitfalls to absolutist positions on free speech, right? We we all know that yelling fire in a crowded theater and the person who gives away state secrets or whatever, right? But generally speaking, the the complications, the the unintended consequences arising from say. Uh, censorship, government censorship, or regulation of speech are far worse than absolutism and free speech. Is it the same sort of thing here when we're talking about discriminatory practices? For example, I agree that as a business owner, like the the old trope is actually true, right? If if women really earn twenty three percent less than men for the exact same job at the exact same efficiency and 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 production levels. Wouldn't I, as a greedy capitalist, have a company comprised of nothing but women? I'd be paying 23% less, and I'd be producing the same service that made my my uh, target uh, demographic just as happy, right? It seems to me that that would be a simple arbitrage opportunity that every capitalist would take uh, advantage of. Well, not every, just enough. Or just well, enough to disprove the theory, right? In the past, that's a big part of why some of the labor unions were pushing for minimum wage laws specifically for women during the Industrial Revolution, in part because they were worried that women were coming in and taking these factory jobs for women and children for lower rates than men were. So it, and it also, happen. Well, there was... I think that it's not culturally as likely to happen at this point. So, Brian, but is, I'm sorry, go ahead, Bob. Brian, you mentioned, you said a phrase um a second ago in your comment uh the phrase was something like society why doesn't society encourage more women to study sem something a phrase mm -hmm. society i didn't know how that works how does society we're not talking about a university it's much broader mm -hmm. Just what did you I was trying to follow the point. What did you mean by society encouraging women to study SEM? Because I always look for, okay, how do I change what I vote for? How do I change uh, what principles I support? So I'm asking the question not to proofread your comment. That would be obnoxious, but just to understand your point. Sure. I mean, I know that a lot of people have a lot of libertarians have a problem with the word society. I think it's a perfectly fine word. And what does it mean to say, like, society discourages, discourages swearing in front of children? Well, it means that if you do it, a lot of people won't like you. Very few people will like you for doing it. That's all it means. All right. So if something, if, if it is likely that, that you know, there are going to be a lot of people that don't like it and will express their displeasure with you, that would be a case of, dis of society discouraging something. And you can flip it around for encouraging. Uh, the point that I was making was this. Uh, one of the main reasons why women earn less than men is because they don't study STEM. That can statistically explain a large part of the earnings gap. Now, at this point, I would say the reasonable person would just say, all right, well, I guess that's fine, and we should stop complaining about that part of the gap. However, someone might have very high standards, and they might say, not good enough. I'm still going to blame society for this outcome because we should have made women feel more positive about STEM and we fail to do so, so our society is bad and we need change. Uh, that is another view that I was mentioning. It's a view that I think is just holding the world to unreasonably high standards, but it's coherent. 
So, Kat, do you agree with that? Mm -hmm. Or, Kathy, do you agree with that in terms of is the expectation to to hold society to say, should I have encouraged my niece to become a biologist like her uncle? Or should should I have been perfectly happy and smiling when she became a, a linguist? Is like, I mean, is that something that I sh that I need to take on myself or her parents need to take on herself on themselves because they did not push her towards a STEM career, for example? Actually, what's what's ironic about this whole conversation is um, Richard Reeves just published a book called Of Boys and Men. Richard Reeves is a feminist, and this is an entire book about how men are disadvantaged in society. So yes, mainstream feminist discourse is dealing with what's happening, how sexism is negatively impacting men, case in point. Um, but his whole thing is that Women, there's actually been a lot more in society, and he looks at think tanks and grants and yada yada, getting women into STEM, than getting men into any kind of. So I was just on a panel to introduce Brock. Who are school teachers um, and so nurses and jobs like that? I mean, I think that's just as equally concerning. Um, if I can share a personal anecdote, when I was looking at colleges uh, quite a while ago with uh, my father, um, who's a great dad overall. Uh, not, this is not a knock against him in any way, but I remember we're just sort of having an off-the-cuff um, discussion. I, uh, I studied political science, unsurprisingly, uh, but my father's an engineer. I'm Indian. Lots of Indian men become engineers. And he said to me, um, I'm uh, and I remember this line because I remember it stuck out to me so much. He said, I'm so glad you weren't born a boy because I f you would have been a terrible engineer. And uh, my thought when I heard that was just like, man, I feel really bad for boys who would be forced to go into engineering, even if that's not where their interests lie and not what they would be best at, right? So I, um, I, I do agree with Brian that there, there has been sort of this weird hyper-focus on getting girls into STEM uh, that's been more or less successful. There have been many more girls studying STEM, but they tend to drop out. Uh, in large part because of uh, what they say the work environment is like or the, the um, a lot of sexual harassment issues and things like that. It's been the same with uh, women who go into things like construction work and things like that where they've said they've faced very high levels of uh, sexual harassment compared to other fields that they've uh, been in. But, um, you know, I really don't think that we should be trying to force people to do things uh, that they're not best at. I believe in comparative advantage and... You know, I'm a lot better at thinking about political ideas than I am with designing, uh, you know, parking garages or whatever that is. And I think not only am I better off, but the world is better off that way. Yeah, a quick okay. comment. Uh, yeah, Rob, can you let me talk? Uh, but, uh, so, uh, the Richard Reeves book of Boys and Men, I was just on a panel on it. And here's one striking thing about the book. He repeatedly talks about how other people discouraged him from writing the book because they said we shouldn't be talking about men's problems. Uh, if we're going to take him seriously as a feminist, I think we should also take him seriously for this claim that, in fact, there is a strong view among feminists that they should only talk about problems or primarily talk about problems of women and that men's problems either are not as important or just don't deserve to be talked about. Thank you. Oh, why, isn't there, why isn't there a word for somebody who... who focuses on men's problems. I was just trying to make it in this yeah. panel. There's a feminist 
There's no equivalent. I can't, uh, I'd have to invent the is, word for there, uh, Bob, uh, there is. Uh, so sometimes people will just say men's rights advocate or masculinist is even used. Uh, the person to read here is Warren Farrell. Right, an amazing thinker. He was on the national board of now. He was famous for writing The Liberated Male or Liberated Man, uh, which was seen as one of the first works of male feminism. And then he apostatized and said, wow, I've been talking so much about how we need to listen to women's problems. And the whole time I haven't been listening to hear about men's problems. Uh, so then he wrote uh, multiple very good books. He has his book, Why Men Earn More, uh, which is... A remarkable book because it's not one where he's saying, ha ha, I've gone and shown that men are making more money because they're doing a better job. Rather, he said, look, these are 25 reasons why men make more money than women. And if you're a woman who wants to make more money, would you, you should consider changing one of these 25 things, right? Or maybe more. And at the same time, you know, since he draws a lot of attention to how men make a lot of sacrifices in quality of life to make more money, you could also read this book as saying, here are 25 ways that men might think I'll take a sacrifice and pay to have a better life. So that one is a great book. He has his book, uh, Women Can't Hear What Men Don't Say, where he talks about his involvement in counseling. In particular, he said, I did, gave a lot of lecturing about men about how they needed to listen to women. And then I realized I wasn't listening to them, and they mostly were just sitting there being talked at. And when he and he said, well, how is it you get a person to talk about their feelings? He said, oh, that's right. You don't immediately bite their head off when you say when they say something you don't want to hear. You try to go and encourage them to feel like they can. Um, again, it's just a great book about how people ought to communicate better. What strikes me there was a there was a strange um, exchange amongst us a few seconds ago. Brian started this little strain by pointing out that the wage gap, if one exists, the wage gap. Um, is a result of women not studying STEM, STEM sort of a, statistics. A reason. Uh, a reason, exactly mm -hmm. right. And then we started to speculate amongst us, should we therefore be encouraging women to study STEM? That to me, as I was listening, was like, how do we cook the books? How do we get the number up without regard to what it means to the women we're going to now urge into studying STEM just so the statistics get better. No one said it was better for the woman. It was just better for the statistics. It was rather strange, at least to me, as a listener to that part of the conversation. So I do think that this is a failing of certain schools of mainstream feminism, or at least people who are looking at it from uh, the the... Um, big picture and focus on things like representation uh, within certain groups. And I think that, um, you know, if you look at demographic data, it's a data point and it should be treated as a data point and it might tell you a larger picture. But just because there is a discrepancy in how many men do something or how many women do something isn't in and of itself a problem. It's just potentially, and that goes for every other demographic um it's not just about gender, but it's it's not specifically a problem because it's not 50-50. It can, just can be an indicator of a problem. And I think uh, yeah. a lot of times that gets lost. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's funny because I was just thinking to Bob's point, like I grew up in some of the most doggy dog work environments. I used to work on Wall Street and I remember 90, 95% of the floor traders were all men. 
but the few women that were there that were super successful had what you would instantly call like maybe masculine qualities, right? They were very aggressive. They were very direct. Their language was very coarse. Um, physically, they would be bouncing off the walls. They were, they, if they were married, I think they were childless, you know, they, they, whether, I don't want to say they became more manlike because I think that's not the right way phrase I'm looking, but they shared the qualities that in that situation it brought them more success. But we're running up against time right now. So I just want to take a quick one minute each for our guests and just uh, let me start with Kat. Kat, uh, in your opinion, what is it about feminism now that you would like to see and how would you like to promote feminism as you see it right now? What do you think we should do? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think first and foremost, feminism is not a bad word and should not be a bad word. Feminism is not um, is not the sort of uh, uh, anti-hero, uh, you know, nagging school marm th school of thought. I think it's really about trying to open up pathways for individuals to be able to live their own best lives, regardless of their sex or gender. We need to move away from this focus on the war between the genders, war between men and women, and start looking at the ways that sexism really does continue to impact people, all people, uh, negatively, even now. Kathy. I think that men are penalized more harshly for performing femininity than women are punished for performing masculinity. And to make the conversation about men are oppressed or women are oppressed by the other is just stupid and counterproductive that we need to understand that it should be everyone against sexism. It should be everyone against this okay. pressure to conform Brian. to these gendered expectations. Right. Uh, the title essay of my book, Don't Be a Feminist, is called Don't Be a Feminist, A Letter to My Daughter. And yes, the point of the essay is to convince her to not be a feminist. Uh, this is a view that I think should be held by no one. Uh, why? Uh, because I just don't think that it is true. Well, let me actually, the, no one is too strong. I know. So uh, in modern Western societies, I think it really should be held by no one because it's just not true that our society, these societies generally do treat women more, or rather do treat men more fairly than women. I think, in fact, because of the way the law has evolved, it's generally the other way. We have a giant system of coercion trying to go and hunt down examples of sexism where generally, if you look more closely, there's a simpler explanation of what's going on. So, yeah, so... Um, I mean, if there is going to be a war on sexism, I think it's one where we should calm down and say, well, wait a second, do we even know who the real sexists are? I think that there is a lot of sexism among feminists, honestly, not necessarily including our current panel, but it's something that is worth considering. Um, so, but again, like the main thing I would say is just to listen to specific claims about what is going on and to assess them based upon the evidence. And I think in general, while obviously you can always come up with examples of way that, ways that women have been treated unfairly, that is not the correct way to figure out what is going on. What you need to do is to take a statistical view and a comparative one. Because again, if, if uh, it were just to say that fit women are treated unfairly in our society, well, that's of course true, because guess what? All people are treated unfairly in all societies. Uh, but if you were, if you want to go and say, let's specifically focus upon the unfair treatment that women receive, that's where you need to begin by showing, well, is the treatment they receive especially unfair in such a way that would warrant this special attention? And that's where I'd say in modern West society is not. 
Although I, in the book, I do actually mention the other uh, counterexamples. So I think in particular in China and India, the evidence for female infanticide is quite strong and that's very severe. Um, something that almost no one talks about, so at least in the West, but we should. Great. Okay. Thank you very much, Brian. And Bob, you get 30 seconds to have the final word, my friend. I'll leave, I'll leave seconds on the table. To me, the goal of feminism is to have nobody talk about feminism or any distinctions at all. After all, libertarians at, at our core, I'll speak for all of you, uh, look to individuals and not to groups. And sex, of course, is a pretty big group. Uh, so I would wish we, f we no longer find it necessary to even discuss the issue. All right. Bob, that's a great way to end the show. And I want to say thank you to our guests, Kathy uh, Reisenwitz, Kat Murti, and Brian Kaplan. Join us again next time for another great episode of Free For All. Until then, this is Big John saying goodbye for my co-host, Bob Zadek. Catch you all next time.